Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop titled Precision Medicine in Cancer Treatment. Now, I know you've all been hearing a lot about this, and indeed today's program is really going to really teach you even more about this topic and what it means and what it means for specific types of, of cancers as well. Um, now, today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration and um, actually um, your interest in this topic that we have so many of you on the call today. So we have over 544 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, China, France, Morocco, and the United Kingdom. So you really are from all over the world, and it really is a credit to all of you that you have chosen to spend the next hour with us. Now today's program is supported by an independent um, educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Um, and actually, um, I, I have to say that we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Edith Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is Clinical Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology, Program Leader, Gastrointestinal Oncology, Department of Medical Oncology, Director Center to Eliminate Cancer Disparities, Associate Director, Diversity Affairs, Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson, and President, National Medical Association. And I must tell you all that Dr. Mitchell is speaking to us from Washington, D.C., from the Moonshot Initiative, which is um, just um, met this morning and is meeting the rest of the day, and she um, is with us today. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Mitchell. Dr. Messner, thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me to speak today and to be a part of this illustrious um, panel. Uh, my colleagues are very, very well uh, experienced in this area. And thanks to the audience for being a part of this program and listening to um, this panel. Uh, so precision medicine, what is it? Um, it's really a medical model that proposes the customization of healthcare, not only for cancer, but for other diseases also. And it is based on the fact that medical decision practices um, and the products that we use to treat patients are individualized according to the individual patient. So in this model, diagnostic testing is often utilized and we try to uh, select opt and optimize therapies based on the context of a patient's genetic uh, content or the content of the tumor, uh, if it's cancer, but for other uh, disease processes, some kind of molecular or cellular analysis. And the tools that we utilize in precision medicine can include the molecular diagnostics, imaging, are specific software. So it basically refers to the tailoring of medical treatment to the individual characteristics of a patient. It doesn't mean that we are creating drugs or medical devices that are unique to a patient, but rather utilizing the patient's information 
to classify the uh, disease process into subpopulations that may differ in either their susceptibility to a particular disease or in the biology of the disease that allows for more optimal uh, diagnostic and therapeutic interventions so that we can uh, better select a specific treatment for the patient. Um, there are too many diseases where we don't have enough information regarding the prevention or the effectiveness of treatment, and therefore this allows uh, clinicians better insight into the biology of the disease process, the environmental or the behavioral are uh, environmental influences that uh, can impact on the disease process. So precision medicine is really uh, a new and emerging approach to how we evaluate disease and how we select and optimize treatment, uh, treatments as well as uh, prevention. Uh, so uh, this really took on a new um, engagement and new uh, um, fuel to the fire, I will say, um, on January 20th of 2015 when President Obama announced the Physician Medicine Initiative in his State of the Union address. So there has been tremendous engagement uh, since that time. And President Obama called for uh, the addition of significant um, monies and funds to support the initiative and therefore uh, more efforts toward the process. And overall, uh, he put into place a cohort program, and that cohort program's goal was to extend precision medicine to all diseases by building a national research cohort uh, so that more patients could participate, more clinicians and researchers participate, so that we could uh, set the trajectory of finding information about diseases at a much higher level, a much higher pace, and therefore offering patients uh, more information that could impact on the disease processes and it also brought together researchers uh, as well as clinicians treating the patients uh, and patients themselves together uh, such that um, there was a team engaged in improving healthcare, participating in health research, uh, and utilizing all of the uh, technologies that we had available, including uh, the research laboratories, the electronic health records, and other data processing technologies so that more information was shared and more information regarding these processes was available uh, for research and learning. And overall, the important um, information was that uh, this will focus not only on the disease processes, but on ways that we might increase an individual's chance of remaining healthy um, from a disease process 
and remaining healthy throughout life uh, and with a longer life. So the goal of the program really is to bring together all of those factors that could potentially impact on a patient's uh, disease or disease processes. Uh, so with that, Dr. Messner, that is basically what precision medicine is all about. And utilizing precision medicine, we have therefore embarked on and have outcomes and results that show we're improving in multiple disease processes. And um, not only those conditions that are malignant, uh, but also on some malignant uh, disease processes uh, where tremendous benefit was needed for patients. So uh, my colleagues later will describe some of the uh, cancers for which we have really improved our knowledge, our method of taking care of patients, and our methods of bringing together those influences that could potentially impact on a patient's uh, survivability from cancer. And I can say that for many of these cancer processes and cancer diseases, we can see that patients are living longer, they're responding to therapies better, and we know more about uh, how to take care of patients after they have been effectively treated for cancer. So. Uh, the survivorship plan. So I thank you for allowing me the opportunity to speak together uh, with this panel today, and you will hear more about specific cancers uh, such as lymphoma or uh, colorectal cancer and others. So, Dr. Messner, thank you very much for allowing me the opportunity to speak with you today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. That was really extraordinary and just a wonderful introduction to the call and very insightful for the participants to hear about the, how precision medicine has really um, extended what we understand about cancer. So thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is, uh, is Dr. Um, Leo Gordon. Uh, Dr. Gordon is Abby and John Friend Professor of Cancer Research, Professor in Medicine, Director of Lymphoma Program, Co-director Hematologic Malignancies Program, Division of Hematology Oncology, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center of Northwestern University, Medical Director of the John and Bullion Matthews Center for Cellular Therapy. And Dr. Gordon is going to be um, addressing the role of precision medicine in the treatment of lymphoma. Now it's my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Gordon. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. I appreciate the opportunity, and thank you, Edith, for such a wonderful introduction to the topic. Uh, we, we think about precision medicine as the way Dr. Mitchell described it, really, and it's when you think of where the word comes from, it's to become more precise in our understanding of these diseases, and particularly as it applies to uh, malignancy and specifically to lymphoma, we're looking for the most part at a molecular analysis of not only the tumor but also surrounding tissues and trying to detect what we call driver mutations, certain mutations in the DNA that might lead to the development of the malignancy, specifically lymphoma, so that we can attack those or target those as part of our treatment. As a, 
as a sort of a fallout or an outshoot of that, <clears throat> we also are looking for certain pathways uh, in the development of the tumor that can be targeted. And there's, I'll show you, I'll be able to tell you many examples of how over the past several years uh, these have really made a major impact, especially uh, in the malignant uh, lymphomas. Um, so we'll start with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, uh, which is really a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, pretty common among the most common uh, form, diseases of its kind in, 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 in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and it's a disease where there have been huge strides made over the past, I'd say, five to ten years. All of this based upon our better understanding of the molecular abnormalities. So we can attack these diseases with much more precision. And so the, the concept of precision medicine fits very well here. And there are a number of examples of this. We know now that there are certain uh, mutations, uh, either missing chromosomes or extra chromosomes, which might be present in uh, people with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which predict outcome and allow us to tailor our therapies to those. So examples of those might be a deletion of chromosome number 17, which may be associated with a somewhat more aggressive course in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. By knowing that, we know that we can tailor treatment when it's necessary uh, to that sp uh, particular chromosome abnormality. We also know that there are patients with uh, mutations of the immunoglobulin gene, specific mutations of the immunoglobulin gene that might do better uh, with treatment than patients that don't have mutations. And so we know now that patients treated with certain chemotherapy regimens who have a mutated immunoglobulin gene have very, very long remissions and do very, very well, where those that don't might do better with some alternate therapy. Also, in the last, I'd say, two years, really, has been a major uh, milestone in the treatment understanding of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, primarily because of the development of two new drugs that are specifically targeted to specific portions of the what's called the B-cell receptor. And those are all, we understand those all now better because we understand the uh, genetics and we understand the molecular abnormalities. So one of those drugs is a drug called ibrutinib or Imbruvica which was approved in this past year for the treatment of chronic lymphocytic leukemia and has resulted in dramatic responses in patients who've had many treatments and maybe those treatments weren't working so well. Now there's a large majority of patients that are having dramatic responses. This abrutinib targets a protein called BTK and we understand about BTK because we understand with precision uh, which genes are abnormal in, in, in this disease. Another example of a new drug that was approved really literally in the past few weeks is a drug called ABT199 or another name for that is venataclax, which is a disease that targets a gene called BCL2. BCL2 is the gene that makes these uh, CLL cells live longer than they should. Uh, it, it sort of blocks our natural process of cells dying off. So the problem in CLL isn't necessarily that the cells are growing too fast, it's that they're not dying fast enough. And this gene is responsible for that. So by inhibiting this BCL2 gene, 
uh, this drug, venetoclax, has resulted in dramatic responses also in patients with uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So understanding the, the genetics of this disease, uh, predicting outcome, and understanding the, um, uh, the, the pathways allow us to treat this disease better. So that's chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Another common type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is a disease called follicular lymphoma. Uh, follicular lymphoma. We've known about follicular lymphoma for decades. We've understood how it behaves, but we were having trouble predicting which patients might have a very indolent or slow-growing course and which patients might have a more, perhaps a more aggressive course. And recently, there's been uh, uh, studies looking at specific mutations, looking at specifically six genes uh, which are important in predicting outcomes. So by using those genes and analyzing other factors such as routine clinical factors, symptoms, lack of symptoms, we're able to predict which patients um, might expected to do well, sometimes very often without any treatment, and which patients might need an intervention earlier. We also are revising our classification of follicular lymphoma uh, by um, understanding new molecular abnormalities. Uh, there are certain new genes which have been described with certain types of follicular lymphoma. There's a gene called IRF4, which uh, predicts a very favorable outcome in follicular lymphoma. Uh, there are other genes which we've now associated with specific abnormalities. Further, some of the same uh, genes, and we'll get to this in a moment further, but some of the same genes which are present in chronic lymphocytic leukemia might also be present in follicular lymphoma, so that the drug abrutinib, which I mentioned in CLL, is now being tested in follicular lymphoma, and the drug ABT199 or venetoclax is now being tested also in follicular lymphoma. Uh, further, our uh, treatment using rituxan, which is perhaps one of the first targeted treatments in, uh, in cancer in general, um, is, is very effective in follicular lymphoma, and there appear to be now new versions of rituxan, more modern, if you will, versions of rituxan based upon the way these drugs work. Uh, these drugs appear to be more active with less side effects, and these are now going into clinical trials and uh, are being approved at a fairly rapid rate. So our understanding of follicular lymphoma and our understanding of the natural history has resulted in better outcomes for those patients. The next disease where uh, a better understanding of the molecular abnormalities has made a huge impact is a disease called mantle cell lymphoma. Mantle cell lymphoma used to be a disease with a very, very aggressive course, and people uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago uh, didn't do nearly as well as they're doing now. Uh, and that's because of our understanding of the molecular biology. We can now treat these diseases with more precision. So one example of that is a, is a gene called SOX11, S-O-X-11. Uh, that, that, the presence of that gene helps to predict the outcome. So the presence of the gene suggests a somewhat more aggressive course, and we've now learned that patients that don't have this SOX11 gene may have a very, very indolent course and may not need to be treated at all, at least for many, many years. And this is in a disease that was treated very aggressively across the board. We can now target certain populations of patients with mantle cell lymphoma based upon understanding of these genes. And 
just like in follicular lymphoma and CLL, uh, BTK, as I mentioned, is a target in mantle cell lymphoma, and the drug abrutinib has been approved for that. And we just presented data uh, looking at this new drug, Venataclax, in mantle cell lymphoma. And uh, there are going to be trials that are going to be started using a combination of these two new drugs, neither of which are chemotherapy drugs, actually, but these are targeted agents that rely on our understanding of the genetic makeup of the, of the disease. Uh, finally, uh, the other common non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. We learned a number of years ago that there were two major subtypes of this disease, um, so-called activated B-cell type and a germinal center type, and they have very different clinical characteristics and respond differently to treatment. More recently, we've learned that there are certain genes. One is called CMYC, M-Y-C, and another BCL2 present as it is in follicular lymphoma and CLL is also present in large cell lymphoma. And when those genes are mutated, the disease has a different course and probably should be treated differently. And in order to get specific for patients with this precision medicine, there are studies now looking at the ability to detect circulating tumor DNA, that is DNA that's specific to the tumor and can be distinguished from normal cells in the body, specifically in patients with large cell lymphoma so that we can then begin doing, doing what we call blood biopsies of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. They can get treatment, they can be in remission, and you may be able to detect a recurrence much earlier um, by doing this so-called circulating tumor DNA analysis. And these are studies that are ongoing um, right now and are, and are just, just beginning at the beginning of, of our understanding. The other point I wanted to make as we hear about colon cancer and other disorders is that we may begin to think of these diseases not so much as distinct entities based on whether the, the malignancy came from the colon or the lung or the breast or the lymphoid system, but really based upon what genes are abnormal because there are commonalities to these diseases. CMYC is present in many malignancies, not just in large cell lymphoma. And we are probably now entering an era in our clinical trials that are addressing this where we're, beginning, we're going to begin to treat diseases like lung cancer and breast cancer and lymphoma with similar drugs based upon common genetic abnormalities. And that's sort of where we are for the future as we get toward a, a precision medicine that alters the outcome, alters the natural history, and improves the lives of everybody with these malignancies. Uh, so thank you for your time and attention, and I'll turn this back over to Carolyn. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gordon. That was really extraordinary and also just really so informative and, and really exciting to hear about um, all of the breakthroughs that have occurred and, and how they apply to lymphoma specifically and, just, and also how they are um, many of these apply to other, other um, cancers as well. So thank you so much. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Albie Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center of Northwestern University. Um, and Dr. Benson is going to be addressing precision medicine in the treatment of colon cancer. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thanks to all of you for joining our group today. I'd like to stress that over the past 12 years in particular, there have been very substantial changes 
in our treatment for patients with colorectal cancer, in particular metastatic colorectal cancer. So currently, over this time period, there have been 11 anti-cancer agents that are now available. Five of these are chemotherapy agents, and six are what we refer to as biological or targeted therapies. And with these various agents, we now have many, many combinations of therapy that we can give in sequence over time. And, and this approach has clearly improved outcomes for uh, our patients. Unfortunately, for the chemotherapy drugs, we have not been able to identify these very specific patient characteristics uh, from which we could choose a specific uh, treatment approach. With the biologic therapies, it's also been a challenge so that uh, one class of drugs known as the anti-VEGF agents and bevacizumab or Avastin, uh, as it's known, is one of the uh, most commonly used in this class for metastatic colorectal cancers. Um, has been a challenge because we do not have a, a tumor marker to choose which individuals might benefit. However, we have been making inroads in precision medicine in terms of looking at specific patient characteristics uh, and the biology of tumors, uh, such as genetic changes, which can have uh, an impact on prognosis and also treatment decisions. So currently, cancer treatment guidelines, such as the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines, have identified four specific uh, markers, if you will, or biological characteristics within a, a colon tumor, which can guide treatment choices and give us information on prognosis. And these are referred to as MSI, which is microsatellite instability. You might also hear the term mismatch repair, such as deficient mismatch repair. And although MSI and mismatch repair are analyzed using different laboratory procedures, they actually represent the same biological phenomenon, and these tests are, are now a routine. Uh, the three other uh, biological tests include what's known as KRAS, NRAS, and BRAF. There's actually a fifth uh, referred to as HER2, which we know is an important marker for the treatment of breast cancer and stomach cancer. But now there's a lot of interest in colon cancer because there are patients with HER2 expression, and we are conducting clinical trials to see what the benefit of treatment that targets uh, HER2 expression uh, for uh, metastatic colorectal cancer patients. So we we're certainly following this marker uh, very uh, carefully. I'd like to uh, focus a little bit more now on microsatellite instability. Um, this is particularly important um, biological phenomenon to test from a patient's tumor because 
there are individuals, it's estimated perhaps about 5%, who have what's known as Lynch syndrome, which is an inherited form of uh, colorectal cancer. And uh, it is very important to identify inherited risk because it affects how we monitor patients who have Lynch syndrome and a colon cancer, but it's also important to address the risk with family members. Now, uh, there are also patients who have MSI uh, tumors, but they are not an inherited cancer situation. So that's referred to as a sporadic uh, colon cancer which is uh, MSI positive. And it's estimated that about 15% of people with stage 2 colorectal cancer have MSI H tumors. And this is important because these individuals have a really excellent prognosis, and they do not need chemotherapy after successful surgery. So it's an important test. Now, we also know that uh, even though if you have a, an MSI positive tumor, for many, many people, it's a good prognostic factor. Nonetheless, there are people with MSI tumors who can develop metastatic disease, and it's estimated about 4% of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer are MSI positive. Now, uh, at the American Society of Clinical Oncology meetings, which were just held in Chicago this year, this subject of MSI-positive uh, metastatic colorectal cancer tumors was the subject of intense discussion. And that's because these type of tumors are ideal candidates to receive immunotherapy. And we are currently conducting uh, more clinical trials, which we hope will confirm that immunotherapy is effective for this group of patients. And if this is indeed confirmed, this will add yet a brand new approach uh, for patients. Now, unfortunately, most patients with colorectal cancer do not have immunosensitive tumors. And there's a great deal of research going on right now trying to identify additional patients who may have what we call MSI-like tumors where we may actually be able to give immunotherapy and perhaps give immunotherapy in a combination so that we make these tumors much more immunosensitive. So we're, we're very hopeful that this type of research will be uh, very productive and lead to more treatment options for patients. Uh, now, I, I had mentioned uh, KRAS, NRAS, and BRAF uh, mutations. Now, uh, this is very, very important information for us to know. Uh, these markers can have uh, prognostic importance. But most importantly, they can help drive treatment decisions. So if a metastatic uh, colorectal cancer patient has a, a KRAS or NRAS mutation as determined from their tumor assessment by the pathologist, then these individuals 
will not benefit from what's called anti-EGFR therapy and the two drugs we have for metastatic colorectal cancer that are anti-EGFR agents include cetuximab and panitubumab. It's estimated that somewhere between 50 and 60% of patients have this mutation. So we, we certainly need to test for this because we do not want patients to be exposed to a therapy and the potential toxicity if the treatment isn't going to work. And, and this is an important premise around the whole idea of precision or targeted therapy. We really want to give therapy that has the greatest chance uh, to actually help people. There's also uh, what's known as the BRAF mutation. Uh, this mutation is seen in about 10% of individuals, and there are now ongoing clinical trials where we are looking at combinations of biological therapies um, that will, uh, in some cases, specifically address the BRAF mutation, but we're already seeing some encouraging results that we may be showing added benefit for this group of patients um, if they receive some of these very novel combinations. So we, we hope we'll have much more information uh, later this year and, and into 2017. Now what we also understand is that if a, a patient has a BRAF mutation, they are not very likely to benefit from cetuximab or panituvimab. So um, it, it's also an important mutation to know uh, for that reason. What was also very interesting at the ASCO meetings this year is there were several presentations that looked at the differences in outcome for patients, whether they had a right-sided colon cancer or a left-sided colon cancer. Now, uh, there are differences, and we've actually known for some time that there are survival differences in if a patient has a right versus left-sided colon tumor. And this makes some sense because when the colon is developed in the embryo, uh, there are embryologic differences in development between the right versus the left colon. And uh, more recently, we've begun to understand by tumor assessment in the right versus left colon that there are clear biological differences. And it, it's very, very important to understand these biological differences, and these include whether a tumor, for example, has microsatellite instability, which is a much more dominant finding on the right side of the tumor, uh, I'm sorry, the right side of the colon. But um, we are learning more and more um, uh, about these biological differences, and um, we also are beginning to realize that depending on the tumor location, some of the agents that we currently have uh, may be more or less effective depending on where the tumor is actually located um, in the uh, intestine. And so now as we look at new clinical trials, we're going to have to pay much more attention 
to the tumor location and evaluation of biological uh, differences in the tumors because these can have uh, important prognostic uh, uh, information for us to guide decisions for a patient, but uh, in, in the end it may also determine which therapies uh, may be most effective to offer uh, an individual patient. And uh, so uh, I think uh, we've made tremendous progress in colorectal cancer. We uh, clearly have much more work to do, but I think in terms of precision medicine, uh, colon cancer is well poised for uh, more investigation and learning more about the biological differences with the ability to develop uh, no, many more therapies that can more specifically address these biological differences. So that was a brief review, but uh, I thank you for your attention, Dr. Oh, Metzner. Thank you. thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really outstanding and really very uh, insightful in terms of the specific details of the um, of, the, of how precision medicine applies to colorectal cancer with lots of details that people I don't think really totally um, understood before your presentation. So thank you very much. Um, and our, our next speaker um, is Dr. Alan Bryce. Dr. Bryce is Vice Chair, Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Director, Genomic Oncology Service, Mayo Clinic, Arizona. Um, and Dr. Bryce will be addressing precision medicine and the treatment of prostate cancer. And it's my pleasure now to this program over to Dr. Bryce. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Uh, pleasure to be uh, on this call again. Um, thank you to all the uh, attendees who are listening. Um, as I think as everyone well appreciates, the technology has really advanced our ability to, as we say here, be precise in terms of understanding what's going on with an individual patient's cancer. When I'm talking about this with patients, I like to emphasize that the new technology is really just a, it's a continuation uh, of a centuries-long trend uh, in medicine in terms of understanding disease processes and improving our care. In many ways, what's happening in precision medicine and in prostate cancer is a, a very nice example of this, is we now have tools that are able to more clearly define what the treating clinician has already long understood. And I think Dr. Benson's uh, already uh, touched on this, the, the idea that in the clinic we, began, uh, we begin to see patterns uh, simply uh, through seeing many patients and understanding that there are various different courses uh, that diseases can take. In prostate cancer, this is illustrated um, perhaps most simply uh, by our understanding of, say, the Gleason score. So a very familiar scoring system to anybody who under, who's suffered from prostate cancer, who understands it, that when the urologist, the surgeon, initially does surgery, they will tell the patient that their prostate cancer has a score, typically something between 6 and 10. And, for example, when we see a high Gleason tumor, an 8, 9, or 10, we know that this is a high-risk patient, more likely to metastasize, more likely to die of their disease, and when we see a Gleason 6, we know that this is more of a low-risk patient. And in a sense, the assignment of this score by the pathologist was precision medicine 
uh, really state-of-the-art precision medicine 40 years ago. Uh, but we now uh, can take this further because we know that within those scores, for example, a Gleason 8 or a 9, which is supposed to be high risk, there are still patients who will do very well. Their disease will never come back. And then within the Gleason 6s, there are patients who will do very poorly. Their disease comes back very quickly. And that shouldn't happen if the Gleason score was uh, really was all that needed to be known about the tumor. So in the earliest phase of prostate cancer where we're at with precision medicine is there are now a, a wide variety of tests coming online which will analyze the genetic signature of a particular cancer and go beyond the Gleason then to be more precise and say this is a high-risk Gleason 6 or a low-risk Gleason 8 um, to give the patient a better sense of are they likely to have their disease come back or not. So this is precision medicine as a prognostic test, something that helps tell the patient what their prognosis is. Further down the line, there's also precision medicine as a predictive test. That is, precision medicine which allows us to say, will a patient respond to a given therapy or not? In prostate cancer, clinically, we've long understood that prostate cancer typically starts out as a hormone-sensitive disease. The prostate is a male organ. It grows in response to testosterone. And the prostate cancer typically maintains that characteristic. So early on, we can treat it simply by denying the cancer its testosterone supply. Having said that, there are patients who from the onset have no response to testosterone at all. The cancer grows regardless of uh, the testosterone level. And this is what we call uh, well, hormone insensitive disease or androgen independent disease. Typically this happens after treatment. This, typically this happens after the patient's been treated for their prostate cancer for many years, but sometimes it'll happen early. And there's long been a question of how can we recognize who these patients are. So in the past few years, the group out of Johns Hopkins with uh, Dr. Anton Arrakis and colleagues have demonstrated that a mutation in the testosterone receptor within the cancer cell can cause the cancer cell to grow without any testosterone supply. And this mutation is called ARV7. Not only can this mutation tell you which patients are going to be resistant to hormone-directed therapies, but we can also demonstrate that this mutation develops over time. So we can show that early on the mutation is absent, and then when we treat the patient with hormonally-based therapies, this mutation eventually evolves within the cancer. We can also show that by giving the patient a chemotherapy, that is a, a treatment that has nothing to do with hormone therapy, that the mutation will then disappear. That, the, that is, the cancer will continue to evolve, and since we're not attacking the hormone pathway, it will resume using that pathway. And this then leads to the possibility that by tracking the presence or absence of this mutation, we can, in real time, choose what treatment's going to work best at what point in time for the individual patient. So this potentially gets into this concept of, of treatment sequencing. With any given cancer, we can have a list of therapies that might work, and it's entirely possible that a, a therapy that doesn't work at one point in time for a given patient 
will work at a different point in time based upon how we induce or suppress specific mutations within that cancer. So this is a uh, this, this ARV7 story is one that's still evolving, and we have studies uh, actively accruing patients trying to find therapies that will work in ARV7 mutant patients versus AR androgen receptor normal patients. Another story in prostate cancer right now is our uh, improved ability to pick out what we in the clinical world have long called either neuroendocrine prostate cancer or anaplastic prostate cancer. So we recognize clinically that many patients will reach a point where their cancer, their prostate cancer, no longer looks like a normal hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, but rather really starts to look more like a general carcinoma, say small cell lung cancer or, or an adenocarcinoma of the lung or other organs. And when that happens, chemotherapy is really the only option that works. But recognizing that early, uh, is the trick. We, we don't have clear criteria for which patients are headed down this pathway or not. And in recent years, the West Coast Dream Team, which is a large uh, collaboration of multiple cancer centers doing genomic analysis of advanced prostate cancers, has come out with what, what appears to be a genetic signature that allows us to tell which patients are headed down this pathway. And they're aggressively working on trying to translate this into a blood-based test so we don't need a tumor biopsy. And if we can do that, then we can understand very quickly which patients need combination chemotherapy with really much more traditional lung cancer drugs rather than prostate cancer drugs. Another story in prostate cancer, and, and very exciting recently, is, is the development of PARP inhibitors in prostate cancer. So many of you may know that PARP inhibitors were initially developed to treat uh, patients with breast or ovarian cancer with a mutation in a gene called BRCA. That's the gene which uh, carries high familial risk for breast and ovarian cancers at very early ages. What's often forgotten is that prostate cancer and pancreatic cancer are also BRCA-associated malignancies. And what we've been able, what we, what we have long predicted for many years now is that the PARP inhibitors which work for BRCA mutant ovarian and breast cancer should also be used in prostate cancer. And it's only in the last year that that trial finally happened and has been reported. And to really no one's surprise within the prostate cancer world, PARP inhibitors did work in prostate cancer. Now, this was a, a less than 50-patient study. It was published in the New England Journal last October. But it led the FDA to give a breakthrough status to Olaparib, in prostate cancer, and we now have access to that drug uh, for prostate cancer patients. And the key distinguishing point here is that even though BRCA mutation in the patient's genetics only happens in about 1% to 2% of prostate cancer, in the tumor itself, DNA repair defects, including BRCA and an entire family of related genes, might occur in as much as a third or 40% of all prostate cancer patients. And so when we talk about precision oncology, it's very important to distinguish the concept of what are the, what are the genes that the patient carries and is passing on to their children or shares with their family versus what are the genes that are mutated only in the cancer itself. And inevitably, the mutation rate is always higher in a cancer than it is in the healthy, uh, the, the healthy cells within the patient. So 
I'm going to stop there because we've uh, got a number of other topics, but there, there is clearly a lot going on uh, in the prostate cancer world in terms of understanding and dissecting the genetics of the disease and understanding the evolution of prostate cancer. This is helping us in terms of bringing in new drugs and helping us also in terms of picking the right drug at the right time. Thank you very much. I'll stay on for questions later. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bryce. That was really, really outstanding, I have to say, and, um, and very clear um, in terms of its implications of, of precision medicine for, um, for prostate cancer, but also just in putting it in the whole context. So thank you very much, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Justin Gaynor. Dr. Gaynor is instructor, Department of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, Assistant in Medicine, Massachusetts General Hospital. And Dr. Gaynor is going to be addressing precision medicine in the treatment of lung cancer. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Gaynor. Well, thank you, Dr. Misner, and uh, thank you to all of our listeners out there um, for taking the time um, to, to hear this, uh, this presentation. I think uh, hearing the, the last uh, several speakers, you'll notice that there, there are several common themes, and I just wanted to touch on some of them. And, and the biggest common theme is that when we've been talking about uh, lymphoma, colon cancer, prostate cancer, or, or as I will now, lung cancer, uh, you'll see that we're, we're not talking about it as a single disease. Um, we're talking about in the last several years about how can we subdivide these cancers and, and not only just subdivide them, but then pick out ways how we can treat different cancers um, using different therapeutics. So, for example, you've heard about, you know, Gleason scores in prostate cancer where a pathologist is looking at underneath the microscope and looking at the cancer. And that's an assessment that's done by eye. Similarly, in lung cancer, which is what I treat, our pathologists look underneath the microscope and start making subdivisions of lung cancer. The broadest subdivision is, is breaking it down into either non-small cell lung cancer or small cell. This is a convention that we've had in place for decades. More recently, we've then started subdividing that a little bit more, again, based on uh, inspection by eye by a pathologist, and subdividing those uh, non-small cell lung cancers in, into adenocarcinoma and squamous cell cancer, so uh, different subdivisions based on just visual inspection. However, we know that lung cancer isn't just one disease, it's many, many different types of diseases. And uh, recently, the best way for us to subdivide this is on the genetic level, so looking at alterations in DNA. Now, as Dr. Bryce was just explaining, uh, we can break down genetic changes really into two major types. Um, one type are what we call germline. These are mutations that are really present in every single cell of the body, and these are mutations that one is born with. Um, and those are mutations that then may have implications for family members. But what I'm going to focus on is the other type of genetic alteration, which is what we call somatic alterations. These are generally only present in the cancer, and so they don't really have implications for family members, but they can have very large implications for how we treat lung cancer. 
But the other point I want to make there is that because they're present only in the cancer, generally that's what we have to test for these genetic alterations. We have to test the actual cancer itself. And I would say that lung cancer has really been a model of precision medicine in the last uh, 10 to 12 years. And that's because what we've learned is that uh, different lung cancers can have genetic alterations in genes that predict for our ability to use oral uh, targeted therapies. Um, some of these genetic mutations that, that some of you may have heard about, the most prominent ones are called EGFR, ALK, and ROS1. Now, these are present in only a subset of lung cancers, but we know that when we find one of these alterations, we can use a targeted pill-based medicine that can have dramatic effects on the cancer. In fact, when we compare chemotherapy, which had been the historical standard, versus these pill-based medicines in people with these genetic changes, the pill-based approaches have always won. Now, unfortunately, these pills, uh, you know, one of the issues that can arise, even though they're very effective, is this concept of acquired resistance that um, when you start giving a very, very targeted medicine, the cancer can evolve. Uh, you heard a little bit about how, how cancers can evolve uh, from Dr. Bryce and, and hearing about prostate cancer. The same thing can be seen in lung cancer when we use a genetic targeted therapy. And so what we've learned is the importance of continually reassessing the cancer over time uh, when we see that one of our therapies isn't working, and really trying to then individualize our next line of therapies. And in lung cancer, it's been an exciting time. Um, in the last year, there have been two different drugs that have been approved for different genetic mutations, but in each case, these have been approved after, some, after patients have be developed resistance to an earlier generation of drugs. So essentially, these are drugs that can overcome one form of resistance. And one exciting technology that, that you already heard about, um, I believe from Dr. Gordon, is this concept of, of using uh, blood-based biopsies. And I mentioned just being able to continually reassess the cancer over time. Um, that can be difficult if it means doing invasive biopsies. But now, with a simple blood test, we can try to track the, the genetic changes, so uh, small pieces of DNA that cancers release into the bloodstream, and can find them in very, very small quantities and that can then guide our therapy. I think this has a, a couple uh, important implications. One is that we can take insights that we've learned from, from one cancer and apply it to another if we see a similar genetic alteration. A good example here is, is um, as, uh, half of melanomas as a form of skin cancer have a mutation called BRAF. And we've known that we can use uh, pill-based BRAF inhibitors in melanoma, and that can be very effective. In lung cancer, recently, we found that 
BRAF mutations are also present. Um, and we can take the same drugs that we used in melanoma and now apply it to lung cancer and see similar results. Now, that's not always the case, and it's not necessarily always so simple. Um, you heard a little bit about BRAF mutations in colon cancer, and that's one place where that, that um, breaks down a little bit. Um, and finally, I, I know time is, is short, um, I did want to say, you know, make one final comment about immunotherapy that is trying to use the immune system to attack cancer. And I bring this up because not everyone will have a targetable genetic alteration in lung cancer. And so in the last year or so, we've found that uh, drugs that target the immune system, and these are called PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors, have uh, really changed the whole landscape of lung cancer and are quite effective, um, actually were superior to chemotherapy in in the second line setting, so after people had already received chemotherapy. Now, uh, late last week, uh, there was a press release that got everyone very exciting, excited, saying that uh, one clinical trial um, was recently stopped early because of um, the, it already showed that it was successful. And uh, that was testing those same drugs in the first-line setting. So patients with metastatic lung cancer who were treated with an immunotherapy versus chemotherapy, and it looked like the immunotherapy was superior. Now, we haven't seen the data from that study yet, uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, it's an extremely exciting result. Um, it, it is restricted to a smaller patient population. We don't have the exact numbers, but they did, in an attempt to be more precise, which is the theme of this call, um, focus on patients who had uh, their tumors tested positive for a, for a protein called PDL1, which is thought to be the target there. Nonetheless, I, I think that's an extremely exciting result, and we hope to see the data in the you know coming months. But I think that's going to completely change the landscape and make uh, therapy for lung cancer even more precise and targeted. So in the interest of time, I'm going to stop there. Um, I know we have one other speaker. Thanks. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gaynor. That was really excellent and very, very informative as well in terms of the application to lung cancer, but also you're able to expand it to other cancers as well. So thank you so much. Um, really excellent. And our, and our next speaker is uh, Ms. Sarah Kelly, and Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she's going to speak about the service of cancer care as well as actually the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to show the program over to Ms. Kelly. We've gotten a lot of great information today. So as Dr. Mester said, I'm an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care. I work with many people who are diagnosed with cancer and their loved ones. We've been talking today about precision medicine, managing your care, really quality of life issues, and I'd like to really speak about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be a part of your network. 
Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone who is affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face -face in the New York area and over the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we also do face-to-face -face in the New York area. We do them over the phone nationally and online, both nationally and internationally. We have education programs like the one we're on today. We can provide practical help, assist you navigate the healthcare system, and we also have some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers. And as I said earlier, they're completely free of charge. An oncology social worker really is trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends or the support network. We're also trained to help cancer patients and their supports tackle the problems that may accompany the disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact in care. And I find that adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process, and I actually consider it to be a part of treatment. You know, as you know, cancer affects uh, the whole person and the entire support network. What I really want you to take home with you today, aside from all of the amazing information we've gotten from today's call, is that you don't have to do this alone. Uh, you really don't have to walk the path alone. With a support group, you can connect with others who are going through a similar situation or experiencing similar problems. With individual counseling or meeting with an oncology social worker one-on-one, -on -one, you have a space that's just yours to voice any of the concerns you may have and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And I find the connections really help lessen the isolation that often comes with a diagnosis. Feeling well emotionally also can help you better deal with diagnosis and treatment and everything that comes with that. At this time, we're offering a number of groups, including face-to-face -face groups, telephone uh, support groups, as well as online support groups. If you are interested in any of these services, and they are for anyone affected, that is patients and caregivers, please uh, contact us. And you can reach us on our HOPE line at 1-800-813-HOPE, and that's 1-800-813-4673. Or you can visit our website. We have a very comprehensive website. It has information not only on our support services, but actually on all of our programs, as well as on your diagnosis and treatment, ways of coping as you go through this. And our website is www.cancercare.org. We've learned a lot from today's program. Really, I'm just amazed at how much ground was covered today. But that does mean there's a lot of information to digest and get your arms around. Know that we're here to help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. If you have any questions about today's workshop or any of our services, don't hesitate to reach out and contact us. And lastly, please remember you're not alone. You know, our services really are here to help you. Thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk today. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Kelly, Sarah. That was really excellent. And, um, and now we have time for questions. We do have time for a few questions today. So I'm going to ask um, that um, Andrea explain to you how to queue up the questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, Andrea, if you could explain to the audience how to queue up the questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, to ask a question, please press star then 1.
So we have a question from one of our online, um, one of our online participants. Um, has precision medicine been shown to be more effective in treating specific kinds of cancer, or has progress been made across the board? So I'm going to ask um, actually our speakers to address that question kind of in a general way, both in terms of a particular type of cancer that they're treating, as well as the um, as well as the uh, across the board. I'm, I'm going to start with um, Dr. Gordon. Yes, well, I mean, I think that in lymphomas, certainly um, the progress has been uh, really major, especially in we look at CLL and then maybe in diffuse large uh, B-cell lymphoma, where our better understanding of molecular abnormalities has led to more tailored treatments and has also led to better predictions of prognosis uh, so that we know that somebody who's got a mutated, uh, what's called a mutated uh, phenotype, uh, is expected to do better with certain types of chemotherapy uh, than those with an unmutated phenotype. And so I think the progress has been there in these diseases, and I think we're going to start to see it across the board as we now cone down on subgroups. I think it was pointed out that these aren't one, that CLL isn't one disease, follicular lymphoma is not one disease, lung cancer is not one disease. Uh, these are diseases that can be subdivided based on molecular characteristics, and we expect a better outcome because of that. Well, thank you. And Dr. Benson, do you want to comment as well? Well, uh, I think that um, precision medicine is still very much a subject of promise. It, it certainly hasn't been fully realized, and there's a tremendous amount of work that has to be done. And uh, as uh, I think several speakers mentioned, what we're hoping is that there will be biological characteristics that are seen across different tumor types where the same therapy may work across tumors. So, uh, for example, I briefly mentioned HER2 expression and that's a, 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 um, an area of investigation in colon cancer because we think uh, we can potentially utilize drugs that will help people who have a HER2 expression colon cancer. But we already know in breast cancer and stomach cancer, if people have HER2 expression, there is the potential for people to uh, respond to the biological drug known as trastuzumab. And uh, in colon cancer also, if a person does not have a BRAF or NRAS or KRAS mutation, they are more likely to benefit from panituvumab and cetuximab. However, even if they don't have the mutation, not everyone will benefit from those drugs, and there lies uh, a component of the challenge we face, that even though these markers are helpful and identify people who may respond, not everyone does. The same is true for immunotherapy. Although we've identified tumors that appear to be ideally suited based on markers and other observations, such as lymphocyte infiltration around the tumor, not everyone benefits from immunotherapy. So there, we've made a lot of progress in our understanding, but there's a lot more work to do. 
And, and uh, Dr. Thank you very much. And the wonderful uh, this dialogue. And Dr. Bryce, did you want to add um, as well? Hi. Hello. Can you hear me? Dr. Bryce. Yes. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. Sorry. Um, uh, you know, I, I would say we're we're absolutely making progress. I mean, I appreciate the. You know, the, the fact that progress does feel slow sometimes, unfortunately, cancer remains, uh, you know, a scourge, a major health concern without any question. Um, and it's difficult, I think, for the individual patient, uh, you know, to take the long view uh, because many of our patients don't have that luxury. Uh, you know, I, I have been uh, doing this for, well, I've only been doing this for about 10 years, but 10 years is long enough, and I can say that, that the field is entirely different from what it was when I started in terms of our advances. So I, I'm very encouraged by the pace of change. Uh, that is not to minimize the challenges we face in, in, in uh, getting to where we all want to be, which is to, to, to make it so that patients aren't dying of cancer and aren't suffering from cancer. Uh, so we certainly don't, um, we don't discount how long we have to go, but, uh, but at the same time, I think we can't take satisfaction in how far we've come. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Bryce. Um, and uh, Dr. Gaynor, did you want to comment as well? Hey, I, I would just add that, uh, you know, we're certainly making progress. Um, we, especially as our technology improves, our ability to do genetic sequencing, our ability to use, you know, blood-based markers, um, we, we are making tremendous progress. Uh, what it does look like, at least for some of these genetic changes, it looks like you really need to have the marker um, in order to, to have a chance of responding, um, that if we don't see the marker, um, that it, it's kind of like a lock and a key where you have to have the right genetic change and pair it with the right therapy uh, in order to derive a benefit. Thank you. And um, we have a question in front of our telephone participants, I believe. Is that correct? Or? Yes, we do have a question from the line of Gwendolyn C. Your line is open. Yes. Hi. Thank you. I would like to ask a question regarding hormone therapy. I heard a lot of information that uh, was matriculated from the physicians regarding how the hormones and how they communicate with the cells. For someone uh, who has had uh, hormone therapy because of a hysterectomy, would that have any validity in changing the DNA or the structure or the chromosomes of genes where other family members do not suffer from certain cancers? That's an excellent question. Um, Ashley, thank you, Gwendolyn, for that question. Thank you. And um, I'm wondering if any of our speakers could address that question um, in a general way, perhaps, that would help um, Gwendolyn to better understand how, um, how hormones work, if they indeed do change uh, structures. Sure, I can uh, address it if you like. Uh, oh, Dr. Is that Dr. Bryce? Yes, hi. Oh, yeah, it's, you know, in, yeah. in a general sense, I mean, the... the Dr. Oh, Dr. Bryce, could you have a speaker? I think the... Okay, speaker. Hello? Hello? Dr. Bryce? Oh, okay. This is better. Okay. I have the handset. Uh, Oh, yeah, that might be better to go on just the handset, yeah. Thanks. So, you know, recognizing that the, the purpose of hormones, uh, they, are, they are signaling molecules and very important molecules that get secreted by, you know, one organ or another in the body. 
and then send a signal to other parts of the body that it's time to, to grow or act somehow, right? So the hormones involved in pregnancy and the changes that happen there, the hormones involved in puberty and growth and development. I mean, hormones are, are fundamentally important and, and part of natural, normal growth processes. Now, as a result of that, keeping in mind that even the, the, the most aberrant cancer cell is still going to be 99% similar to your healthy human cell or more similar to your normal healthy cell than to, say, the cells of anybody else, you know, in the world. Um, keeping that in mind, the cancer cells maintain many of the uh, advantageous growth properties, uh, or as many as they can, uh, and they'll bring that with them as they become malignant. So it stands to reason, then, that Something as powerful as a hormone that can cause and stimulate growth is something that a cancer cell will seek to take advantage of if possible. Now, in a healthy patient who's on hormone replacement for any variety of reasons, whether it be prior hysterectomy or, or other reasons why people have hormonal deficiencies, these are not generally associated with increasing cancer risk as long as they are done appropriately. So that is, you know, if, if you get hormonal replacement for a prior hysterectomy, you know, that's certainly safe and appropriate as long as it's directed by your physician. Um, but, you know, as with anything else, you know, there are limits, there are extremes, and, and there are patients abusing hormones. Uh, think of the athletes giving themselves all this extra <laughs> testosterone because they want to perform uh, better on the athletic field. There certainly are negative health consequences there. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Um, and um, we have one last question um, from one of our um, online participants. Um, um, so the question is, um, has precision medicine affected how specific genetic subsets of the populations are treated? Um, and, um, and then and along with that, what is the role of precision medicine in cancer prevention? not just the cancer treatment. So I'm going to start again with uh, um, Dr. Gordon. Well, I think in, in certainly in lymphoma-specific genetic subsets, we know that there's in large cell lymphoma, for example, at least two different types and probably more than that. And we're now designing clinical trials that are targeting those two types, the activated B cell types, maybe more expected to be responding to drugs such as Revlimid or Brutinib in addition to chemotherapy or maybe even in place of chemotherapy, but certainly at the moment in addition to chemotherapy and their clinical trials looking at that. And then patients with uh, the germinal, so-called germinal center type of lymphoma, which is all based on genetic information or molecular information, are treated a different way. Uh, and so, you know, we're beginning to subdivide these uh, much more than, than we had. In terms of prevention, uh, it's a great question and a great topic. We don't yet know enough about this, at least certainly from the lymphoma standpoint, to be able to prevent this because we don't know yet what causes it. Um, but I think as we gain information on genetic information on large populations of patients, as is being done now in some of the uh, studies that are, that are ongoing, we'll begin to address that, uh, those issues. Um, and so I think that's where there's a, there's a big challenge, certainly, uh, and I think that should be the next step. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Benson, did you want to add to that? 
Well, uh, certainly prevention is extremely important in colorectal cancer, which we view as generally a preventable disease, and that's why there is so much emphasis on screening programs for people to have colonoscopy because if we can identify what's called a precursor or pre-malignant um, lesion uh, such as a colon polyp, we can prevent cancer from developing. And also in terms of the genetics, uh, I talked about microsatellite instability. We do know there are uh, families at risk for inherited colon cancer, and uh, these cancers can occur at much younger ages. And so it's very important to identify families who have inherited risk because we can screen families and take precautions so that a, a colon cancer will not develop. So we have both for the general population as well as for people with inherited cancers strategies uh, so that a uh, cancer won't develop. But there's also a great deal of interest in prevention, for example, looking at uh, vitamin D as, as an example. There's been work looking at diet, at calcium, as well as other factors that may increase a person's risk for colon cancer, and it's the subject of a lot of research. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers. They've been phenomenal, just terrific speakers, um, really wonderful presenters. I want to thank all of our participants today, actually, for asking such great questions, really just um, excellent questions. and. Um, this has been an amazing topic. I must say it's one that we could, of course, continue talking about all afternoon. Um, it's one that has really captured the um, attention of really everyone, and to some extent, and the, the advances that have been described today on this call have really been really rather phenomenal, I must say. And I think that um, also, I think just um, the uh, involvement of um, our first speaker, Dr. Mitchell, in the Moonshot Initiative, um, the attention by the, um, by the president and by the public about just making really this a major initiative in cancer research has been really important as well. So I actually want to thank all of you for being on the call today. Um, I want to remind all of you that this is a one-hour workshop and in planning, well, today was a one-hour and 15-minute workshop today. And in planning this program, we recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. So with that in mind, I'd like to remind you, um, as Ms. Kelly did, that we have many services at Cancer Care, that, and we are here to, of course, help all of you. Um, and uh, I think that um, if you have any further medical questions in terms of just questions about your particular type of cancer, I definitely recommend that you would contact the National Cancer Institute um, they, have, um, they have information specialists that are available to answer any of your medically focused questions, and that number would be 1-800-422-6237. Again, 1-800-422-6237. And for those of you who really want to access some of our psychosocial services at Cancer Care, speak to one of our oncology social workers, or actually access some of our um, programs here at Cancer Care, our financial assistance programs, our practical services, listen to further workshops that we offer, 
um, for the programs that we have, definitely um, please do contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 um, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, as we conclude our program today, I don't want anyone to think that you're alone in coping with cancer and trying to really, as um, Ms. Kelly had said, is trying to wrap your hands around and understand um, you know, uh, cancer. We want you to know that you're part of this cancer care world here and that we're happy to help you in any way we can. So please do call us and um, we are here to help you. Thank you all and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.